Hi, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited to be here with you. Today is a very special episode. It's our 500th podcast episode. We cannot believe it. After more than 11 years, we've hit this momentous number, and to celebrate, we asked our listeners to submit quilting questions for us to answer. Because without our listeners' support throughout the years, we wouldn't even be celebrating our 500th episode, so we're really looking forward to talking about everything our listeners are curious about. And we have to say, you all stepped up. We received an incredible amount of questions, much more than we could tackle in just one show. So if you submitted one and you don't hear yours answered today, don't worry. We're planning to address them on all upcoming episodes. So because this episode is a little different than usual, I want to explain how we're doing it. So our staff members each chose two questions around topics that they're really passionate about. So you'll get their personal answers um, around each question. And to keep it streamlined, I'm just going to do a quick introduction of our staff now so you can recognize them later on the show. So we have Jody Sanders and Elizabeth Stumbo from American Patchwork and Quilting Magazine, Joanna Bergerino and Allison Gam from Quilts and More Magazine, and Doris Brunette from Quilt Sampler Magazine. And of course, me. So without further ado, let's dive on into those questions. This is Jody. We received a question from Ethel Brown, and Ethel said, I save all my scraps to use in future projects, but I don't have a good system for organizing and storing them. Right now, I just throw everything in a big tub, and then I have to spend hours and hours going through it when I want to start a scrappy project. Do you have any suggestions for how to get more organized? Well, here are a couple of things that I do, Ethel, and I hope that they'll be helpful for you. This is a great question because I, too, love scrappy quilts. I organize my fabrics in two ways. One is by designer. So, for example, all my K-Facet Collective fabrics are in one group, and then my Joe Morton fabrics are in another, and that's a great way to store fabrics. I buy lots of fat quarters just because I like them. These typically then will get sorted by color. So instead of by manufacturer or designer, sometimes I store my fabrics by color. Now the space that you have available to store your fabrics are also going to play a role in the sorting process. Do you have a lot of room or are you limited on space? I like to store my scraps in clear stackable boxes and that's so that I can see the colors right away for those that I sort by color. If you want to add labels to the outside of your boxes, for example, if they aren't see-through, you might want to add a label that has the color on it. Or you could tie a ribbon around it, and that could also tell you what color is in that particular box. Now, boxes come in a variety of sizes, and we know that fabric can get heavy. So just make sure that the boxes that you use are a size that you can comfortably move on and off a shelf once they're filled with fabric. Now, you also may start by style. So what I mean by that is, let's say that you make quilts for Quilts of Valor. If you have all of your red, white, and blue fabric stored together, that means you can get the process of making the quilt going a lot faster. If possible, store your scraps flat or neatly folded. 
This eliminates the need to press scraps before starting to cut into them. Another way is to use decorative baskets. Baskets that are all the same size or style can become a decorative element in your room, in addition to being a great place to store your scraps. Hi, this is Elizabeth. This question is from Jenny Lukler, and she asks, should I tip my long arm quilter? And if so, how much? Now, this is such an interesting question. And to be honest, one I hadn't really considered before. After asking a few quilting friends for their advice, my answer is, it depends. Tipping etiquette usually asks the question, is the person providing the service the business owner or proprietor? If they are, tipping is usually not necessary. For example, if your hairstylist is the owner of the salon, etiquette says you do not need to tip. However, if the stylist is an employee of the salon, tipping is encouraged and appreciated. I would apply these same basic guidelines for long-arm quilters and other quilting services. Now, of course, tipping is always at your discretion, and although it is not always expected, I'm sure it is always appreciated. So if your long-arm quilter really went above and beyond, or maybe they were able to meet a tight deadline for you, tipping would be a great way to show your appreciation. Another way you can show your appreciation is to recommend their services to your quilting friends. You can tag them in your photos on social media, and you can always leave positive reviews for them. Hi, I'm Doris, and this is from Charles at Felt Like Sweets on Instagram. Charles says, I'd love some tips for storing my quilts, especially to avoid creases. It's best to roll your quilts for storage if you have the space. Mine are rolled around pool noodles that I first covered with a white cotton sheet. If you need to fold your quilts to store them, you can use bunched up white cotton pillowcases or crumpled acid-free tissue to pad the insides of the folds to help prevent creases. You should periodically unfold them and refold them in different places. When folded textiles are stored for long periods of time, the fibers along the folds can weaken and permanent creases can develop. Store your quilts in a cool, dry location, keeping them out of the attic and the basement if you can. You should also avoid storing them in plastic or where the textiles may come into contact with unpainted wood or paper. These have acids that can eat into fabric over time. Using white cotton pillowcases or sheets to wrap your quilts will allow air to pass through and let the textiles breathe as well as protect them from coming into contact with harmful surfaces. Hey, it's Lindsay. This question is from Ellie from Florida, and she asks, I recently received a serger. Most of my sewing projects include quilts, table runners, zip pouches, burp cloths, pillowcases, mug rugs, and miscellaneous quick gifts. I am not a garment sewer. Do you use sergers for any of your projects? Well, first of all, lucky you, Ellie, a serger is a fantastic tool to have in your sewing space. Um, they can be a little complicated to learn how to use, but once you do, a whole new world of possibilities is opened up for you. Luckily, many of the projects you already sew can actually be made with a serger, and in some cases, a serger makes these projects faster. Uh, for example, our staff 
only makes pillowcases with a serger. It takes away the work of having to make those French seams to finish them, so it goes so much quicker. Um, and you can also use sergers to do bags and burp cloth. So if you just Google how to make these items with the serger, you're sure to find a lot of great tutorials. Now, sergers can also make really quick work of ruffles, which you may be adding to bags or gift items, or even um, do rolled hems really quickly, which can finish things like napkins. Sergers also have a wide range of decorative stitches that you can have fun kind of mixing and matching different thread colors to add just fun finishing touches to home decor items or gift items. Now, in terms of how a serger can help with your quilting projects, I do have a few suggestions. So if you sew with um, plush fabrics, homespuns, flannels, or you know, any other types of fabrics that may be a little stretchy or tend to fray easily, you can sew them together with a serger just like you would a sewing machine. Um, and I've even surged a plush fabric for the backing to my quilts and it makes quick work of just kind of trimming the plush while holding the pieces together really securely. Um, I think a lot of times when I'm sewing with plush, just that one line of stitching doesn't ever quite seem enough. So serging makes really quick work of making backing, even if you just use regular cotton fabric too. Um, and another use for a serger for your quilt projects is, um, it can secure the edges of a quilt top um, until you're ready to quilt it. So, so in the past, I've, I've stored quilt tops for a while until I'm ready to quilt them. And sometimes when you take them back out of storage, some of the seams are popped or there's fraying on the outside. So a quick serging line around the outside of your quilt top, it trims any frayed edges, it kind of uh, squares things up. Um, and it secures all your quilt top seams. So those are just a few uses, and I encourage you to check out the Serger Company's website or their YouTube channel. Uh, most companies give free patterns or video tutorials on the fun things that you can do with their machines, so that may spark even more ideas for you. Have fun with your new Serger! We have to take a quick ad break, but hang tight. When we come back, we have a lot more listener questions to get through. Welcome back. Let's hear more of these amazing listener questions. Hello there. I'm Joanna, and I have a question from Gladys Stevens. She asks, I've been a member of your UFO challenge for the past few years, but I noticed there are a few UFOs on my list that I never feel like working on and don't love anymore. Should I just buck up and finish them or throw them away? I'd love suggestions. Hi Gladys. I'm not sure you're gonna like my answer, but throw them out. This is something of a controversy in the quilting world and I know our staff has had a few lively debates about whether you should let go of your old projects. It used to be really hard for me to toss projects I'd lost interest in, but after working through those feelings of guilt, i.e. I spent money on it, and I spent so much time, I had good intentions, I hate to not follow through on things, all those kind of feelings. Eventually I came to realize that quilting is my creative hobby, and it's supposed to bring me joy. There's only so much time in the day, and there are so many other projects I want to try. It's okay to not finish something. 
Maybe you already learned what you needed to learn from that project and it's time to move on. Remember too that in the grand scheme of things, it's just a bit of fabric. I mean, it feels weird to say that, but it is, and you have to look at what is bringing you joy. I've tried to buck up and finish old projects before, as you put it, and often I just end up frustrated and unenthused, and I start to lose interest in quilting itself, and that's not good. It's especially hard to get back into an old uh, project if you just don't love the fabric or pattern anymore. I mean, aesthetics change. That's just part of life. If it's hard for you to outright toss them, maybe see if you can convert the project into something smaller to finish it up faster and just move on. Or see if there's another quilter who might like it. Half-finished projects can be good learning projects for new quilters and sewers, especially if they actually like the fabric or patterns that you've grown tired of because you've seen them so much. Sometimes high school and adult education centers will take sewing donations, uh, but be, for, be sure to call and ask first. They might not be taking them right now. Sometimes it's a little easier to let go of something if you know it's going to a good home where it will be used and enjoyed. I hope that's helpful. And also, I just wanted to say thank you for being a frequent participant in the UFO Challenge. I'm so fond of it myself. I've joined for the past few years as well. And I'm really hoping that this year we can both make good dents in our UFO piles and be free of what we call quilt guilt. So I wish you joy in all of your quilting adventures and hopefully you get to finish up a lot of projects this year. Hey, this is Allison. This question comes from Minnie Ballinger. She asks, I know many people got a lot of sewing done in 2020, but last year left me in a funk. I just don't feel inspired to work on anything. Any tips for getting my sewing mojo back again? I'm guessing a lot of people can relate to this, which is why it's so important to address. First and foremost, try not to compare your productivity to others. If you're in a creative rut and you see someone else just cranking out projects left and right, you might start thinking, why can't I do that? It's important to go at your own pace and not force anything. When I'm in a rut, I like to absorb all the beautiful things the quilting world has to offer. Looking through Instagram and Pinterest can be great for finding inspiration and motivation to create beautiful things, but they can also bog you down if you're just constantly scrolling. One of my favorite things to do is look through my fabric stash with no intention of making anything. It's like spending time with old friends and it can actually be a really cathartic experience. You'll probably discover things you forgot you had, or you'll find a print that sparks an idea or motivation to start a new project. I also like to have some quilts displayed in my home that I can admire and appreciate. Think about the experiences you had making those projects and the joy they bring you. That joy might inspire you to get back into your sewing room and start making. Another thing I do when I find myself in a rut is to sew up some of my favorite quilt blocks. You don't have to have a plan for the block or turn it into a big project. Simply spending time sewing one of your favorite blocks can help ease you back into sewing on a regular basis. This is Jody. We received this question from Lois Nance. Over the years, I've occasionally sewn on a machine that was passed down to me from my mother. 
during the pandemic, I started sewing a lot more and wanted a newer machine to support my new hobby. What kinds of things should I look for when buying a new machine? Well, Lois, I'm so glad that you discovered your love of sewing and you're ready to treat yourself to a new sewing machine. Here's a few things for you to consider. While you can buy a machine over the internet, buying local means that you have access to classes, service, and troubleshooting from your local quilt shop or sewing machine dealer. Similar to buying a car, make sure that you trust test drive the machine in person. Ask about service and warranty up front and find out what's covered and what costs extra. Then determine the features that are important to you. For example, if you want to machine quilt your own projects, you may want to find a machine that has a bigger throat area that allows you to push the bulk of the quilt through that area while you're machine quilting. Another consideration is the type and the number of stitches that you think that you're going to use. The more stitches and electronics a machine has, the more expensive typically it will be. The size of the machine is also a consideration. Will the machine be sitting out all the time, or do you sew in a space that requires you to set up and take, take down each time you sew? Cost, of course, is also something. You need to decide on a budget, and telling the salesperson what that budget is can save both of you time. Most stores have a variety and range of machines available, and so if you have a budget where you don't want the most expensive machine, let them know that up front, and that'll save both of you time. Now, having said that, many companies do provide financing plans, and some of them have no interest for a period of time. So be sure and ask. You may be able to get a better machine because you're making payments over time and not having to pay all the money up front. My last suggestion would be to ask friends for recommendations or post questions on social media. We're so glad you rediscovered your love of sewing, and we can't wait to see what you make next. Hi, it's Lindsay. The next question is from Wendy from Idaho, and she asks, I have been doing Hawaiian needle turn applique for about four years now, and I would like to know how often I should expect to change my hand sewing needle. And the long needles that are needed seem to bend a little almost as soon as I start to use one. What do other applique stitchers use? Those are all great questions, Wendy. Um, we all tend to change a machine needle every eight hours of sewing, but we don't often hear about those hand sewing needles. And that could be because the answer is a little more unclear. Uh, it really depends on the quality of the hand sewing needle you're using and the types or even the thicknesses of the materials that you're sewing through. But a common estimate is after 10 hours of sewing. Uh, but there's a few clues you can watch for that will tell you when it's time. So the first is blunt needles, uh, they'll feel harder to push through fabric. So if you are finding that your hands or your wrists are sore after sewing, that could mean that you're working harder to sew and you're using a blunt needle. Another way is um, if your needle is snagging fabric while sewing, it's time to replace your needle. Um, also, just want to point out that most hand sewing needles are um, plated with nickel or gold or platinum. 
Um, and that actually wears off over time and that can cause kind of a sluggish needle going through the fabric. Sometimes a clue to this is if your needle looks like it's starting to rust or if you smell a metallic smell on your hands from sewing. This generally just means that the friction from the fabrics and the oils from your hands have eroded the plating. So those are all great signs to watch for um, to clue you in on when it's time to change your needle or just do it every 10 hours, that's a good estimate. Now you also mentioned that your needle bends. Um, this is actually a, a sign of a great needle that you're using. So good needles are made to bend so that you can sew through all those fabrics without snapping them in half from the pressure. So this bending really shouldn't affect your sewing, it's just a sign that you have a good quality needle. As for what uh, hand applique needles others use, there are some popular quality brands of hand sewing needles. Um, some of them are Bowen, Tulip, Richard Hemmings, and Roxanne, but this of course is not a complete list. There are so many out there. Um, so if you think your needle is easy to use and it's giving you good stitches and it's not breaking, I think you're good to go on the one you're using. Um, in terms of types of needles, Straw needles are pretty common and they're perfect for applique that has larger designs. Um, just because that needle is longer, um, that also makes it great for beginners who are learning to applique. So many times when you're starting, you may be given a straw needle because it's a lot easier to grip and use. Um, but sharps needles are what a lot of appliqueers use who do more intricate applique shapes because they're a little smaller. So it allows you to get really um, small, perfect stitches on those tiny shapes, but there's no set rule. So just try out a few different thicknesses, sizes, or uh, types of hand applique needles and see what you like to use. We have to take a quick ad break, but hang tight because when we come back, we have even more listener questions to answer. Welcome back. Let's hear more of these amazing listener questions. Hi, this is Elizabeth, and this question comes from Sandra Pietropoli, and Sandra asks, what do I do with all of the magazines I've collected over the past 60 years that are taking up so much space? I currently have them organized in magazine holders. Well, first of all, wow, Sandra, 60 years sounds like quite an impressive magazine collection. Magazine holders are a great, great way to store magazines, and I have a couple of tips that I hope will be helpful to make searching for patterns in your collection easier. One idea is to go through your magazines and carefully cut out the instructions for only the projects you are seriously interested in making. You can then store these pages in plastic sleeves and three-wing binders, and I would suggest organizing them by project type or technique. For example, you could have a binder for baby quilts, one for applique projects, and another for scrappy quilts. Just be sure to also save any pattern pieces if the instructions call for them. These are often printed in the back of the magazines. And if space is an issue, this method can seriously help reduce the quantity of patterns and magazines you have to store and organize. Now, if you can't part with your magazines or you just cringe at the idea of tearing out pages, I would suggest using post-it notes to bookmark the pages you are interested in. Write a note on the post-it to include helpful information so you can find them at a quick glance in the future. 
For example, you could write down the name of the recipient or the occasion you want to make the quilt for. You could even color code your post-it notes. So for example, all of green, all of the green post-it notes are Christmas quilts and all of blue post-it notes are for patriotic quilts. Both of these ideas will take some time to set up at the beginning, but will help you find patterns quickly in the future. Just be sure to keep this system going with every new magazine you purchase, and you'll be able to spend more time quilting and less time searching. This is Doris, and this question comes from reader Cynthia Cross. She asks, I'm making a memory quilt for a friend from her late husband's clothes. The clothing items include knits, denim, and corduroy. I'm wondering if I need to use a batting when making a quilt with such thick materials, or are there other ways to keep the weight of the quilt lower when working with heavy materials? Cynthia, I've made a few memory quilts that use these heavy, heavy materials, um, including wool suitings mixed with uh, silk ties and denim and t-shirt knits, and I wondered the same thing when I made my first one. Because the clothing pieces can be all different weights and thicknesses, your seam allowances are going to vary in the way that they lay and how thick they are. You're gonna to wanna to press your seams open and you may need to grade some of your seam allowances. If you're planning to use a cotton backing for the quilt, you will definitely wanna use some type of lightweight batting so that your seams are not visible and, or cannot be felt through the backing. To avoid adding extra weight to the quilt, I recommend using a silk or a bamboo batting. Both are soft, they have a great drape and they won't shrink. You may be able to get by without a batting if you use a good quality minky or a plush backing, which adds very little weight, has no stiffness, and it should be thick enough to mask the inconsistent thicknesses of the quilt top seams. I hope this helps. Hi, Joanna here. I have a question from Debbie Cohen. She asks, many quilt patterns may only have one size included. When I find a beautiful quilt pattern that I want to make, but it doesn't include the size that I want, I wondered if you had any tips for figuring out how much fabric I will need for the extra blocks. I hear you, Debbie, because I almost always adapt patterns to fit my particular needs, and that often means the materials list as written just won't work for me. There are basically two approaches to figuring out how much extra fabric you'll need for more blocks, and one approach involves a bit of math. Either way, if the pattern is written so that the cutting list is for the whole quilt, you'll need to figure out how many of each cut unit you will need for just one block. Looking at the construction illustrations can help with that. Once you have figured that out, you can multiply the number of each cut piece by the number of blocks you're making to figure out the extra yardage. For example, if just one block takes four five-inch squares, and you're making four blocks total, you'll need 16 five-inch squares to make your version of the quilt. Here's where the two different approaches to calculating yardage comes in. If you're going to do the math version, divide the width of your fabric by the width of your, your piece to figure out how many of the piece you're going to be able to cut per strip. So in this example, 42 inch wide fabric divided by five inches for five inch squares means you can get eight five inch squares per strip. You would need two five inch strips 
to make enough squares for all of the blocks you're planning to make. Next, add together the strips. So again, in this example, five inches and five inches for the two five inch strips means you would need 10 inches of fabric total. Once you have that number, divide it by 36, since there are 36 inches in a yard, and you should get 0 0.277777 yards. From there, round up depending on how much extra you want, just in case there are any miscuts. So that's the math version. Kind of a lot of numbers, hopefully you were able to follow along verbally. My personal favorite version, however, is good old-fashioned graph paper. It involves less math, and I feel like it's a little more foolproof in case you, you know, get a few numbers mixed up. So using a scale of one square on the graph paper equals one inch, draw a horizontal 42-inch square, sorry, 42-square line that would equal the 42 inches of fabric width. So again, on your graph paper, just count one, two, three, four, up to 42 squares and draw that line. Next, draw vertical lines going down so that on your graph paper, you have what looks like a cut piece of fabric. Don't draw the bottom line yet though. Then just start drawing in your pieces. So for the five inch squares in the example, you would draw a five square by five square, well, square uh, on your graph paper. Keep drawing until you have filled in 16 of what would be a five inch cut quilt square on your graph paper. Then count the vertical squares to figure out how much yardage you would need. So again, on our example, if you were to count down the squares, you should have 10 squares because you would have two five inch strips. Then take that number, divide by 36 again, and you have your yardage. I like the graph paper method because you can see what you're doing and make sure you didn't forget any pieces and make sure you counted correctly. And it's just easier to not accidentally make a mistake. Plus, if you keep that piece of graph paper, you've basically made yourself a handy cutting diagram to follow so you don't have to remember any of the math you did and try and remember how you got the numbers that you did. And plus, it helps you get the most out of your fabric. Hopefully that helps. I know it was a lot of numbers and info. Just don't forget to add in a little bit of extra fabric for any miscuts, and you should be just fine adapting the pattern to meet your needs. Hey, this is Allison. This question comes from Doris Henson. She asks, I love browsing for fabric online or heading to my local quilt shop. Sometimes I come across a piece of fabric I absolutely love, and even though I have no plans for it, I need to own it. But how much do I buy? I never know. This is such a great question, and I know many of us struggle with this, myself included. I like to base yardage amounts on the scale of the print or the versatility of the fabric. Really think about how you might use this fabric in the future. I tend to mentally categorize fabric into three groups, basic, busy, and bold. If it's a basic minimal print or solid that would pair well with a variety of other fabrics, get several yards. These types of fabrics are great to use for backgrounds or blenders, so you can never really have too much in my opinion. If you're looking at a small, busy print, you'll likely need less than you would if you were choosing a background fabric. Busy prints typically work best when used in smaller quantities, so as to not overwhelm your project. In this case, I would consider buying two yards or less. The busier and smaller the print, the less I tend to purchase. 
If it's a big, bold print that you just can't resist, it could be great for backing fabric, in which case you'll need a lot of it. This is probably the hardest category to shop for if you don't have a project in mind. Backing yardage can usually range anywhere from four yards for a small throw to nine yards for a king size quilt, which is why it's so tricky to determine how much you need. It's best to consider the style of the print that you want to buy. If it's more of a novelty print that would be used for a kid or baby quilt, you could get four to five yards since the quilt will likely be smaller. However, if the print is more suited to a larger throw or bed quilt, you'll probably need to be closer to the nine yard number. In addition to the type of print you want to buy, note how much storage space you have and how much money you want to spend. Those yards can add up really quickly. Speaking from experience, it's better to buy slightly more than less because it's so disappointing when you want to use a certain fabric for a project and find out that you just don't have enough. Hey, it's Lindsay. That's all the time we have for questions today. Thank you everyone who submitted one. You are all so appreciated. Now, before we leave, I wanted to get a little mushy with you all. <laughs> so I start off the show every week saying I'm so excited to be here. And I'm not lying. I'm always excited each week to be connecting with other quilters, sharing the amazing knowledge our staff has, and chatting with our guests. It's a true honor to host the show, to receive all these emails from our listeners, and to explore the quilting world more deeply with my coworkers. And we'd just all like to thank the countless people who have been involved in this podcast over the years. We've had so many amazing guests and hosts and sponsors and staff members who have all worked incredibly hard to make this podcast happen each week. And of course, thank you to all our listeners. Your support means everything to us, and we're so grateful you listen in each week. Thank you for listening to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. From all of us to all of you who listen at home, thank you so much for joining us. Here's to 500 more. It's a pleasure to bring you fun and helpful content each week with our podcast. Thank you so much for being a listener. Wow. 500 episodes. That number blows my mind, and we could have never hit it without you. Thank you so much for listening in, sending in comments and questions, and just being all around awesome quilters. We really appreciate you tuning into the podcast.